In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. Well, this morning began in a little different fashion, didn't it? That was quite a pageant, wasn't it? Palms and donkeys and kids and singing and festival. I think that's great stuff. But I didn't hear you make enough noise. So together I want you to say, Hosanna! Hosanna! Say it again. Hosanna! Hosanna! One more time. Hosanna! You know what Hosanna means? Lord, save me now. (laughs) But you know, on a lovely morning like this, you might be tempted to think, well, why does anybody need to be saved at all? What in the world does anybody need to be saved from? And year after year, we go through these rituals, don't we? And if I were to ask you to say, well, where do these traditions and rituals come from? You might be tempted to say to me, well, of course, they're 2,000 years old. They come from the time of Jesus. But in fact, you'd only be half right On the day that Jesus rode through the Golden Gate, the pageant that he was enacting was already very ancient. The story of Passion Week is the story of God's great love and mercy for you. It's a story that actually began 1,500 years before Jesus Christ. And it began at a place called Mount Sinai. Now let me invite you to take out this handout. Now somebody looked at this this morning and said, Oh Lord, four pages. (laughs) Don't worry. (laughs) We are not going to cover all of this. I put the scriptures here in front of you so that you can have them. And as we refer to them, and I think the message this morning is valuable enough that you will wish to take it home and look it over and think about these things again, and that's why they're there. Well, let's start with the idea of promises. Promises. Now, how many people here this morning would say they're pretty good at keeping promises? Put up your hands. How many of you think you're pretty good at keeping promises? Okay, how about if we ask your wife and kids? Would they give the same assessment? Now, you see, some people imagine that God is like a giant sugar daddy or maybe some silly old uncle. Uncle, mommy won't give me anything to go to the dance tonight. How about 50 bucks for a new dress? But you see, that's not the kind of relationship that God wants to have with us. Here's a better way to think about the kind of relationship God wants to have with us. It is called a relationship like a marriage. God's relationship with us is based on promises given and promises received, promises made and promises kept. Now, in the year 446 B.C., God appeared with power and with glory. And with a mighty hand, he delivered the people of Israel out of bondage brought them across the Red Sea, and then set them out into the wilderness. 
Then he gathered the entire nation together at the foot of Mount Sinai, and he made a wonderful marriage proposal to them. He came to them with a covenant. And every marriage on earth today is merely a reflection, or ought to be, of the covenant that God made with his own people. Now, his marriage proposal is actually found there in Exodus 19. I've given it to you there in the handout. Exodus 19, verse 5. God says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So, how do the people respond to this proposal? Yes, I do. I will. Look at verse 8. All the people answered together and said, Well, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, sometimes, you know, we frame the Christian life as if we were relating to a vending machine. Hey, brother, have you got your salvation? Well, run quick and go get it. But what the living God wants with you this morning is your heart. He wants to enter into a marriage-like covenant with you. A covenant based on promises given and promises kept. So let me ask you again, how good are you this morning at keeping your promises? Well, Israel proved to be a whole bunch of promise breakers from the very first. Some of you here this morning know how painful it is when people break their promises to you. You come from a family, perhaps, where people don't do what they say. Well, that's exactly how the Israelites were. Before Moses could even get off the mountain of Sinai, the people had already turned aside and started chasing after other gods. Look at Exodus 32, verse 8 there. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and worshipped it. Now, imagine this, friends. Imagine if on your wedding night... Your spouse had said, excuse me, I'm going to go down the hall and see if I can find somebody else. Would you have been angry? The living God is a person. You were made in his image. You can relate to how he felt. Look at verse 10. God says this. He says, now, therefore, just let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of somebody else. But Moses pleads. He says, Lord, we haven't even got this relationship off the ground. And already we have proven unfaithful. Lord, have mercy Lord, don't think about the promises that we have broken. Instead, 
Lord, remember your promises to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob. And remember those promises, Lord, and remember your own nature, Lord. For you never break your promises. Well, it was less than two years later, Israel repeats the same thing all over again. The same unfaithfulness. They're getting ready to enter into the promised land. And God says, go up there and get it. It's all waiting for you. You can read about that story in Numbers 14. And yet Israel refuses to believe in God's goodness. And before God can show them how much he loves them and how much he's willing to protect them from every single danger, they rebel against God. And you know what? They call him mean and powerless and wicked and stupid and short-sighted. You see, the problem is Israel could not keep her promises. But then again, neither can we. Whether those promises were to Adam or to Noah or to Abraham or to Jacob or to the whole nation of Israel or just to the average man on the street, the story of the human race is of promises poorly kept. And frequently broken. You know, we've become so accustomed to this that we already have an excuse ready in our back pocket. What is it? We all know it. Well, we're only human, aren't we? But you see, that's not much of an answer. For covenants, whether they are human or divine, only work because promises are kept and all of us know the outrage when our leaders and our politicians lie to us and do not keep their promises we know our trust has been broken now friends this passion week is about your promises and my promises not kept. Now, how do you react when promises made to you are not kept? Anger? Feelings of injustice? Revenge? Hurt? From our texts this morning, I hope you see that God feels all those things as well. Yet here is the most astonishing thing. God chooses to react with mercy. He does not pretend that his promises don't matter. They do matter. And that is why God sent his son to keep the promises for us. He keeps the covenant that we, the covenant breakers, just don't seem to be able to keep. And even more, the son comes to absorb in his own body 
the penalty that we, the covenant breakers, deserve. Now, in our gospel text this morning, which is really all of Matthew 26, we didn't read it all, Jesus comes to Jerusalem, and it is not by some mere chance that this takes place in Jerusalem on Passover week. Jesus comes in exact obedience to the Father's will. And here's the amazing thing. God planned Passion Week long before the ages began. God, in his infinite mercy, gave his covenant, knowing full well that it would come down to this, that somebody else would need to keep that covenant. For rebellious humankind simply cannot. Someone else would need to make the atonement for us, poor covenant breakers. And every year at the Passover feast, the nation of Israel would ask, has one finally come who will make atonement for what this Passover symbolizes? And every year, for 1,450 long years, the answer was, not yet. Passion Week is the celebration that, at last, the messenger of the covenant, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come. He has come to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He has come to pay the penalty which we simply could not bear. In Matthew 26, 26, as Jesus sat at the Last Supper with the disciples, he was making an invitation for them to come join the covenant anew. Look at it there, Matthew 26, verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples, and he said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, Christian, you need to understand that Jesus was not offering some new way to God. He was not offering God's revised plan for mankind. Rather, Jesus was offering what was the only hope from the very beginning. And the hope was this, that one like us, truly man, but truly God, could keep the covenant in our place. In his perfect life, he would absorb all our covenant-breaking and failures. He was inviting us to enter afresh the covenant with God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But here's even more amazing mercy, friends. 
in his offer to the disciples to participate anew in the covenant, Jesus was under no illusions. He knew that he was making his offer just to the people who were just like the people of old. People just like us. People who have really high and really noble aspirations. But we carry these aspirations in weak and sometimes fearful flesh. Jesus' invitation, get this, friends, was especially for such promise breakers. Jesus knew that before the night was over, the disciples would all be scattered. Nevertheless, he knew that his atonement would carry them through safely to the end. And he gave that covenant knowing exactly what was to come. Our pageant this morning, Passion Week itself, compels us to respond to Jesus' invitation to rejoin the covenant anew. How will you respond? Interestingly, Matthew 26 gives us a number of examples of different kinds of response. So I ask you this morning, which one of these are you going to choose? In Matthew 26 through through 5, we read about the authorities. Now, Interestingly enough, the disciples don't exactly get what Jesus is trying to do in Jerusalem. They're confused about it. His death and his resurrection will take the disciples completely by surprise. But strangely, it is the unbelieving Jewish authorities who understand exactly what it is that Jesus is offering them. He is coming as the messenger of the covenant. And all these well-educated men, they will have none of it. They see no need for an atonement. Covenant breakers? Not me. Not us. The rabble? Well, maybe. But we, we're sophisticated men. We're literate. We're urbane If there is a God in heaven who really does care about such things as a covenant, we're more than adequate to meet the test. Jesus, do away with him. Matthew 26, 6 through 16, tells us about another response. Judas Iscariot was offended by Jesus' claim to be our unique atonement. Now, it wasn't that Judas didn't believe that there was a need for an atonement, but Judas just didn't believe that Jesus, the very man who had eaten with them, and sweat with them, and smelled with them, and spit on the ground in their presence, 
that man, God's atonement, that's just not possible. It can't be. And the straw that broke the camel's back came at Bethany. Good God, the arrogance of the man to claim that squandering a year's wages on him for bodily perfume was justified? What about the poor? Who does that man think he is? For Judas, the claims of this Palestinian peasant were simply too grandiose to be accepted. Jesus, he must be betrayed. Now, on the other hand, perhaps this morning, you might respond with the very best of intentions, like the disciples did in Matthew 26, 31 and following. With great confidence, they say, Indeed, our fathers failed in the wilderness. But it shall not be so with us. We will keep the promises. Yes, Jesus, even if we have to die with you, we'll not fail. But before the night is over, they have all fled and gone. And yet, here's the wonder. Knowing all this beforehand, Jesus loves them just the same. And he knows what he is about to do for them. In verses 37 through 55, when the supper is over, they sing a hymn and they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And while the covenant keeper keeps watch in prayer, surrendering to the will of God, the three favored disciples fall asleep. <laughs> Not just once, but three times. Jesus warns them, you're about to break your promises. And gladly he would have shielded them from the shame and the regret which will soon follow. But their human weakness is just too great. The failure is almost inevitable. And all that Jesus can do is carry out his own mission faithfully. And that mission was to carry in himself all their failures and shame. The story this morning culminates in Matthew 26, 57 to the end. Peter, the founder of our church, Peter, the greatest of all the twelve. Peter, the first man to always get it right in Sunday school class. This Peter proves to be the greatest failure of all. But Peter, you see, is every man. He is you, and he's me. At the voice of a little girl, Peter turns tail and he runs, and he denies with an oath the master who saved him.
Jesus came to Jerusalem with a fixed purpose. He must face the ordeal of death. He must die in the place of others. The death that covenant breakers deserve, this Jesus must take into his own body. Friends, the ointment that was poured out on him was but a pittance compared to the precious body that he gave in exchange for a million, million sinners. He came without flinching, knowing full well Good Friday must follow Palm Sunday. In his time of temptation in the garden, Jesus kept his promises. While the frail disciples slept, he wrestled with his own soul on our behalf. What we could never do, submit our will fully to the Father, he did for us. And he did so that renewed in the covenant we might find strength to follow his example. In the final moment where Jesus might have saved himself with a single prayer, he suffered humiliation. With only a word, he could have called more angels than half the armies of the entire known world. They would have come and they would have protected their Lord. He would have been saved. But we would have been lost. Instead, Jesus emptied himself to keep the covenant. Jesus came to fulfill all the broken promises of mankind from creation to Sinai, to Jerusalem, yes, and even to Loganville. And that, friends, is what all the shouting is about. That is why we celebrate the pageantry of Passion Week. In these next seven days ahead, we are called to remember and to treasure what Jesus has accomplished for us. So I close with two questions. Dear friends, can you not love and obey one who so mercifully loves and bears with you? Will you not serve the one who made such costly atonement on your behalf. May God give us grace to do so. Amen.